Hi, and welcome to Data Talk. Our podcast covers all things data collection, web scraping, and analytics that will help you and your business become more data driven. I'm Philip Burns, Growth Marketing Director at Bright Data, the data collection and proxy network. Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Data Talk uh, podcast. With me on the other side of the world, my uh, American counterpart, Omri Orgad. How are you doing, Omri? Hi, good morning. How's the weather over there? Uh, Chilly, Chilly. Um, We're waiting for uh, March to uh, finally uh, end and maybe we'll see a little bit of warmth, but New York is is opening up. It's great to see. Nice. And today we're very excited um, to have a very special guest with us, uh, Daniel Rick Standing of EMK. Daniel, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to, to speak with us about all things data. Um, so let's jump straight in. Um, Daniel, just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background, where you're from, where you are now. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Thanks, Phil. It's uh, great to be here. So um, I'm in the investment team at EMK Capital. So essentially, it's my job to source interesting investments, try to execute those deals, uh, and also uh, to participate in our portfolio investments during the whole period. Um, So I've been working with EMK for five years now. And um, before that, I was a uh, strategy consultant. um, And I also did a bit of work in investment banking. So I've done a few different things within the world of, of finance. I guess I'd be lying if I said I sort of always wanted to be an investor, but uh, I think fairly quickly after leaving university and starting to work in finance, I was attracted to the idea um, because I think as far as finance goes, investing in equity, which is, uh, you know, the sort of core instruments behind ownership of, of a business really is the, the sort of purest form of decision-making in finance because you're simply trying to understand, you know, what the future of a business looks like um, and decide on a risk-weighted basis, you know, what is that, what is that worth? Um, so I think it's a very broad profession and you have to deal with, uh, you know, all these kinds of uh, high-level um, questions about the future, which are uh, very difficult to answer, but, but quite, uh, quite interesting. Before we go into some of the details, what, what led you to, to investing? You said you started in finance and, and now you're uh, in, in investments. Was there was that kind of a natural path? Were there specific events that were at crossroads that led you um, into your current current role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, to be honest, I started working in finance more out of a lack of imagination uh, than anything else, because it's what a lot of people around me at university uh, were doing. But then, fairly. Um, early on, when I started working in investment banking, I actually met some people who worked in the investment division um, of the bank in question. And uh, to be honest, I found them you know, very interesting. And I thought they looked at the world of finance in a way that I thought was more sort of uh, you know, intellectually honest um, than some of the other bits of finance, where I guess you know, you're on the sell side, you're trying to sell um, you know, securities and uh, and uh, financial assets to people. I thought that being a buyer was actually possibly the most uh, the most interesting part. Um, and so at that point, I sort of decided it was something I wanted to do. And then there was a little bit of a journey to getting there because typically investment firms don't hire people straight out of university. Uh, you have to do a few years of either banking or consulting or 
um, in my case, a little bit of both um, before uh, before making the move. Would you say there's a specific trait in people that um, end up in uh, on the buyer side? Um, you know, you mentioned that you met people that were, had uh, were, were in this uh, industry. Did you? Was there any specific traits that you think um, tend to be common? It's a very good question, um, and I guess you get a lot of different types of people. Um, you know, you get some people who are very much all about the detail and some people who are a bit more sort of concerned with, you know, the bigger picture um, and uh, sort of more kind of long-term trends and a more holistic view. But in general, I think investing attracts people who are quite, um, quite sort of interested. They like learning, like picking up new things, because I guess it's a very broad profession you have to do lots of different things you know you, you sort of do little bits of being a lawyer an accountant a headhunter you know all, all sorts of different things um i think it tends to attract quite cynical people because i guess it's your job as a buyer to you know to sort of interpret what you're being told and decide which bits of it you think are are sort of uh, justifiable and which bits aren't and i guess you get people on the sell side who are very good at presenting a business in the best possible light and it's your job to try and assess uh you know what sort of what's really there and and what uh what isn't if that makes sense how do you see the data that's coming in into public companies evaluations uh as opposed to private companies evaluations public companies have been using data or sorry i should say investors in public companies have been using data uh in a more sophisticated way for longer than investors of private companies typically and i guess the reason for that is you know public company investing is all about finding any little edge any little advantage that you that you have and once you've found that and you can price a stock better than other people then you can apply that over and over again and keep benefiting from that uh, from that information until other people you know other people find that information out and you know the the information becomes sort of priced into the stock um so it's all about finding these little edges you know here and there whereas uh, and i guess uh, sorry one thing to say is that i guess there's a relatively small universe of companies um you invest in so you know most people in hedge funds and other sort of public markets investors they will have a specific area that they cover and they will dive into huge detail in that area and try to find every little advantage with every lever that they can whereas private investing by by contrast you don't have access to the same company again and again and again so every deal that you look at will be a different company sometimes they'll be in the same industry so you can apply learnings and uh, in some cases you know data sets across the those uh, different deals but it's typically very bespoke to the situation at hand and I think what what that's meant is that the use of alternative data which is all about you know finding that last that last little advantage um, that has been slower in in private markets investing if that makes sense but it's definitely there now Daniel do you think the alternative data has brought any sophistication or what better said what is the change that alternative data brought into the trading of, of private uh, companies 
I think what's happened is you've just had an increasingly competitive environment. So it used to be that, you know, there were maybe a hundred private equity firms across, um, you know, Europe and the US with a certain amount of capital. I don't know exactly how much, but it'll be a good number of, of billions. And what's happened over the last, well, 20, 30 years, but particularly in the last 10 years as well, is that more and more money has rushed into that industry. And that's meant that funds have tended to get bigger. And also you've got more funds as well. So there's far more people, more capital going after a relatively similar number of companies. And that means that to sort of massively oversimplify, whereas once upon a time, if you were in a really uh, sort of typical basic auction process for a, a company being sold that expected to sell to private equity, you might be up against three or four other private equity funds. Now you might be up against, you know, 10 to, to 20, depending on, you know, the country and the type of business. So it's got increasingly competitive and alternative data has been one of the really important tools behind funds trying to differentiate themselves, trying to go that bit beyond the basic information that everyone is given. Um, and I guess this goes a little bit to sort of the process of how these, uh, these uh, M&A processes are run, but essentially there'll be uh, a data room and there'll be data provided by the company that's being sold about itself, saying, you know, this is information you can look at to try and put a value on our business. And everyone gets that information. It's made available to, to all the bidders. And as a result, you can price the company better. You can you know, value the business more accurately by analyzing that data better than everyone else. But that's quite difficult. And once you've got a large number of uh, funds all competing, the chances of you having the winning advantage by doing that is actually relatively low. So bidders look for other sources of information they can bring into the process in order to make themselves more competitive. Uh, and, a, and an obvious example would be something like for any kind of consumer business, you know, you can go to social media, you can go to review websites, and you can collect a huge amount of data on essentially the sentiment of uh, consumers and you know, potential customers of this business um, towards that company or that company's products. And mm -hmm. that allows you more information that maybe some of the other bidders don't have. So I think it's a response to competitiveness and essentially it allows investors to try and differentiate themselves um, and, and, be, uh, yeah, and be more successful and value mm -hmm. companies more accurately. When you sit, I assume that when you sit in a room full of data sets and full of um, financial reports, it's very easy to get lost. So the, I, probably the first thing you do is kind of assess, okay, this is a good data set. This is a bad one. This makes sense. This doesn't make sense. How do you go about it? I guess it depends a bit depending on the investor and on the investment in question. So, you know, hedge funds will have a particular set of requirements that they have for alternative data. Um, and I don't know the details of, of how they would look at it, but from a private equity perspective, by far the most important thing is that the data is available and it answers your specific question. And this goes back to the point about every deal 
being different um, when you're a private markets investor. You won't know in advance exactly what question it is you're trying to answer. And then you'll find yourself in a, a deal process where you're trying to value and, and hopefully acquire a company. Um, and then you'll find all these questions getting fired at you. And because of the way these processes are run, where there's a lot of time pressure on you uh, to you know, come up with your valuation and put your best valuation forwards uh, in a short time frame, um, you, know, you haven't got long to go and scout around and try and find what the best, um, you know, the best ways of answering the questions, what the best data sets would be. So being available and actually answering the specific question, I think are key. Um, and I guess one way in which um, a private markets investment can be easier from a data perspective versus the public markets is that you only need the data to be available once because you make the pricing decision once and then you have to live with it for uh, the next few years. Um, and so you can actually essentially commission your own uh, data collection exercises if that's helpful. And there are a few different um, companies that will do this for you. Um, so actually you can go and collect data. So it doesn't have to be available um, uh, sort of immediately and, um, and upfront, but it's extremely helpful if it is because of the tight timeframes that you're, uh, you're working under. Um, and I guess perhaps the only other thing to add is obviously you'll have a lot of different questions to answer. So, you know, maybe do customers of this business generally like the product? Do customers of this business identify, um, you know, X, Y, and Z issues? Um, you can also have more sort of specific questions like what do we think the revenue of this business is likely to be next quarter? Um, and, you know, what do we think the price of this particular commodity will be next year? What do we think... Um, you know, the market for the customers of this business will do. So if it's a B2B company that sells to a particular, um, a particular type of, uh, of business, then understanding the fortunes and prospects of the end customers of the customers of this business could be important. So there's lots of different questions you can answer. And so most importantly, just having data that actually addresses the point in question or is a close proxy to it is, is sort of the most important thing. Uh, I, you said something really interesting and I'm going to jump in with a question is that we're talking about alternative data and on, uh, I think that there were two specific types of data. It was the financial uh, indications of predicting uh, revenue or, or revenue growth. And there was also the sentiment of the customer, how they connect to the company itself or um, you know the feelings towards a specific brand. Does one or the other have more value in your decision-making process? Yeah, so I guess you know it, it's a sort of shame to admit it, but the truth is that what really matters is the financial data that will actually materialize in, in the future, if that makes sense. So future financial performance, that is pretty much the most important thing for most investors. Not all investors nowadays, there's a whole uh, movement into impact investing where you measure the return of the investment in other more holistic ways that include sort of social and environmental value. But if we talk of just about traditional investing, um, then 
that sort of future financial performance is is the key. And I guess anything that helps you predict what that's going to be is important. And the better it helps you predict it, the more important it is. So alternative data is usually used as a kind of leading indicator for that financial data. In the case of, you know, what is revenue going to be this quarter, you probably won't find out that information until a few days or weeks after the end of the quarter because the company takes time to close its accounts, you know, build its financial statements and report to um, report uh, to, you know, its management or its investors or, or whoever. Whereas if you have data from payment processing companies, you can see that, you know, last, last quarter, for example, um, the company, you know, had this number of payments or this volume of payments or whatever it might be, or this company's sector had this volume of payments, if it's anonymized data, and this is what the revenue the company had that quarter. And then you can say, okay, well, this quarter, we have payment volumes of this, and so we can make an estimate of what we think the revenue is going to be based on that. So that's a very direct relationship between, you know, data and what we're trying to forecast. And then I guess the other example that you asked about with the sort of sentiment data, that is a much more indirect um, connection because, you know, there are a lot of things that impact whether people go and buy products. Um, and this is obviously thinking about a consumer business here. Obviously, it's, it's a little bit different for, for B2B businesses. Um, but there are a lot of things that impact consumer decision making and, and purchasing. Um, and one of them will be the sort of general sentiment or feeling or, or sort of vibe towards a particular product. And you measure that sort of general feeling and whether they have positive or negative sentiment. And that allows you to make some inference and projection about the future and whether they're likely to buy or not in, in the future. But the truth is, you know, that that person could say, yeah, this is a great product. I love it but I've already bought it. And so it's completely irrelevant what, what they think. And what really matters is the views of a much smaller subset of people who maybe aren't currently expressing their opinions because they haven't bought a product and so therefore have no reason to go to you know, a review website or express their feeling about it on social media. So obviously you'd expect a connection of some sort between the two, but I guess I'm just trying to illustrate that this would be a much less direct link between the alternative data and the thing that investors are really trying to measure, if that makes sense. Does it make a difference whether it's a consumer-based business or a B2B um, company in terms of the sentiment of the customers? I imagine that it would. Absolutely. So it's much easier to measure sentiment of consumers via sort of automated data means because they're much more willing to express their views publicly so nowadays you know everyone shares things on social media people write you know reviews everyone's happy to share their opinion whereas businesses generally speaking are much less likely to sort of put out their uh, their opinion sort of publicly available for other people to see i guess the sort of flip side to that is that businesses are usually easier to access because you know you know who they are they have a business they have a phone number they have an address, they have people who, who work for them. So you can sometimes actually just call them up and ask them what they think, um, usually via, you know, advisors or, or through some sort of anonymizing 
um, system so people are kind of happy with the information that's being shared. Um, but I guess in that case, you would approach it in a different way. So you'd actually speak to individuals about their views, whereas when it's a consumer business, typically, you know, this idea of sentiment analysis is, is much more relevant, if, if that makes sense. But I guess sentiment is just one type of alternative data. There are loads of other types that apply just as much to, uh, to uh, B2B businesses. We see a lot of uh, investment firms and, and uh, uh, quant funds and hedge funds building tech, tech teams within uh, the firms themselves. Do you see that as an advantage in the private equity? Do you see private equities that have their own tech teams and data teams uh, get better deals? perform better, I don't know, maybe get a unique uh, deal out of, the, out of the crop? I think in the case of, you know, the public markets, it's absolutely crystal clear. In the case of the private markets, it's still a little bit earlier to tell. And I guess the returns of private equity investors are not as easily um, accessible. You know, they're often kept very private. So, it's hard to know to the same extent, you know, who's winning what and why. So it, it's a much sort of harder judgment to make. Um, and I guess it's generally a bit earlier in the journey. So I think the extent to which these, uh, you know, data science teams will become widespread across the private equity industry um, is maybe a little bit more uncertain. But personally, I think the, the case is extremely strong. Um, and you're seeing a lot of especially the larger investment funds that have more of a, a sort of ability to deploy these people across lots of different companies, um, investing you know, substantial amounts in, uh, in hiring these, um, these teams. So I guess it's a little bit hard to sort of you know, pinpoint specific things because you know, things are often kept quite hush-hush in, uh, in private uh, investing. But um, I'm, I'm personally pretty confident that it will, uh, it will continue to become a feature of the industry. You talked about uh, sourcing through third parties. Um, and we know that the bigger firms are uh, establishing their own tech teams. What is the confidence level that you have uh, on the data sets that you're buying from third party in order to make such a core decision? And how do you measure that confidence? That's a really good, but really difficult question. And I guess it varies very much from deal to deal. If you've got any kind of data set that you can correlate to the data set that you're looking at. So if you can see a history of what you're trying to measure correlating with the data you have, then that obviously provides a high degree of confidence. Um, however, I guess in a lot of cases for private equity deals, because this isn't a company that you'll have been tracking, you know, for a long time and watching the data set and the data feeds for a long time. It's something new that, uh, you know, you were first introduced to maybe a couple of months ago. Um, then in that case, you have to make a much more kind of holistic assessment. And so I guess you have to firstly, just think through intuitively, you know, do you think, X and Y should be correlated. Do you think there's a relationship between these two um, data points that you're looking at? And you know, I don't think you should ever look at one data point individually unless you're really confident in its validity. I think it's really important to 
to look at lots of different uh, data sources. And I guess, you know, that question around confidence in the data that you're looking at is, is really important because, you know, there are all these data sets out there, you know, lots that you can buy on Amazon Data Exchange. Um, and a lot of them either aren't necessarily measuring what you want them to measure, or in some cases, they might be just straight up incorrect. And so having, you know, a source of data that is truly reliable um, is is extremely important. And I guess, you know, if you've worked with a data provider before, or if you've got a sort of established process for collecting data, and you have confidence in that process, that can very much give you confidence in the sort of process of the data that the data you're receiving is right. And then I guess you have to make an internal decision about whether or not you think that data is kind of answering the question that you wanted to, if that makes sense. I think um, we can talk about sourcing as well, because when you look at the public markets, I think it's very easy to some extent, at least the shortlist is very easy. Either you're uh, an uh, pre-IPO, post-IPO, traded, whatever you want to call it. In the private sector, I think it's a little bit different. How do you um, see alternative data contributing to your uh, deal sourcing? So that's a very good question. Sourcing is one of the main challenges that private equity investors uh, face today. In the face of so much competition from other investors, if you can you know, meet a company or develop a relationship with a company or a dialogue with a company prior to um, you know, other competitive investors finding out about it, you can uh, you know, essentially get an advantage in um, an M&A process when that happens. Now, obviously, you need to you know, set your net wide because you don't know when these companies are going to come up for sale and actually have an opportunity for you to invest in them. Um, but it's absolutely critical to be out there trying to find interesting companies that are relevant for your investment thesis and try and find them before other people do. So this is where alternative data can play a really big role. Um, and I guess there's lots of different indicators that can you know, suggest that a company might be considering um, you know, an M&A process or, or seeking new investment. Um, and it depends a little bit depending on the type of company you're looking at. But if we think about startup companies, for example, so earlier stage companies, maybe they're not profitable yet. So they need to go to the market to raise capital every so often. So using, using um, you know, data collection techniques, you can actually collect uh, data on all those different fundraisers that have happened in the past. Uh, you know, there are sort of public web pages that include all of this information. And um, so what company has raised how much capital? When did they do it? Based on the number of employees that that company has, which is also available um, online, roughly how long do you think it takes for that company to burn through its capital and need to go and get more, um, more uh, capital from the market? So obviously it's, it's still guesswork because there are a lot of variables that you won't know because these are private companies, but it really helps you narrow down the list and it helps you take the funnel that may have been you know, 3,000 companies <laughs> down to maybe 300 companies. And then you can look through those and decide which you think are relevant for your investment strategy. Um, so that's one example, but there's other things you can do as well. 
I probably shouldn't go into uh, go into all of them in detail. Um, the the previous ones fairly well understood. It's another it's another private lesson in private equity here, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you feel you have questions? Go ahead. Where do you see like the next ten years going, and how is the um, the influence of of alternative data going to affect private equity? Absolutely. So I think it's only going in one direction, um, and that's for much more use of alternative data. And I guess that's driven by the sort of competitive dynamics that we've been speaking about so far. So you start with the information that is given to you by the company you're assessing, and then you go out and try and collect more information to make yourself better informed than everyone else. And it's a little bit like if you think about in the context of a public company, the share price. So theoretically, all information that is publicly known should be built in to that share price. Now, of course, it isn't because the market isn't perfectly efficient and whatnot, but that's what the sort of theory would tell you. So once information is public, then if you know that information, it doesn't put you at an advantage because everyone else knows it too. And so the share price reflects that information. And that dynamic plays out in the context of a private equity investment too. It doesn't play out in the sense of a share price changing every day, but it plays out in the sense of what the price that would ultimately um, you know, clear the market and secure a deal would be. So obviously there's a lot more volatility in it because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of deals that happen infrequently and they're different each time. But ultimately it comes down to the same thing in that you know, the sellers have lots of different buyers they can go to. And unless you can really differentiate yourself in, in some way, which is possible, but um, is not always possible, then you're essentially competing on price with, with other investors. And at that point, any information that you have that they don't have gives you an advantage. And the minute that you have that information and you've used it once, the chances are other people are going to figure it out further down the line. And then you have to go and find new information again that other people still don't have. And so you get this competitive cycle that just drives more and more information being used to value businesses. And this is what's been playing out in the public markets. Um, and it started to play out in the private markets too. But because of those competitive dynamics, I don't think there's any question about you know, the direction that, uh, that it's going to go in. So the game is basically asking the right questions and answering them fast. That's, that's the Absolutely. game now. Very interesting. Absolutely. I think I would... And having data that you trust, having sources yeah. that you can trust. I think um, part of the, the way, at least what I see in the data market, is that the way that questions are asked usually determines the trust that you get. Um, because if you don't understand the question as a supplier, as a vendor in this market, there's no way you're going to answer the, the question. You have to kind of really understand what you've been asked. And then that's the only way to, to provide the right data sets that create trust later on and down the line. In the venture capital market, all the VC, they're probably doing, doing far more deals than you are doing. And the deals are smaller. Absolutely. But how do you see the difference between you guys and, and the venture capital market? Absolutely. So I think the use of alternative data has maybe come actually earlier for venture capital investors, but on the sourcing side rather than the company valuation side. So for an early stage business, the valuation is a very hard thing to do sort of really detailed analysis of because, you know, the future is, is very uncertain. You know, the business could become hugely valuable or not very valuable. And 
you try and value it as best you can, but it's very difficult to do precisely. And that's where the alternative data usually comes in, is in trying to make more precise determinations. So venture capital investors use data uh, very effectively, but for sourcing investments as opposed to executing investments. And that's where what we were talking about before, where you can you know, essentially collect a database of lots of different company names, and then you can collect data on those companies. Like, you know, when did they last raise capital? How much did they raise? Who are their current investors? You know, if you're an experienced venture capital investor, you can spot patterns that imply that a company will need financing or that a company has uh, been performing well or has been performing badly. Um, and sort of obvious things would be, you know, the rate at which a company has been hiring employees, you know, companies that stop hiring employees if they're early stage companies typically aren't doing that well. Ones who are hiring quickly typically are doing better. So that's a very obvious one. There are more kind of nuanced um, insights you can draw, but that's just a, just an example, if that makes sense. Very interesting. Phil, do you have any more questions? Yes. As a marketer, I, I have like this big kind of passion or belief in marginal gains, you know, and it's part of their DNA as well. Continuous, um, small improvements contribute to, to a big uh, difference. Now, um, I learned this from sports, British, British sports. Do you encourage your, your investments to use data in order to get a competitive edge in their industries? Absolutely. So every business environment is competitive. And especially when you invest into growing areas like, like we do. Um, so typically, you know, pursuing uh, transformational growth, there's often even more competition because there's lots of uh, people who also see, you know, what's attractive about that market. It's similar to an extent to what we were talking about before, where you have investors competing for um, you know, uh, a share in the case of public markets investing or, or to acquire a business in the case of uh, private equity investing. In that, you know, if, you're, if you're marketing and you're trying to reach the same uh, consumers as your competitors or, or business customers as your competitors, um, and you have a certain marketing budget to deploy, the more information you have about those customers, where they are, where they're susceptible to marketing, what they are interested in seeing, what they're likely to respond warmly to, um, you know, that information can be used to deploy your marketing budget in a far more efficient manner than your competitors and essentially lead to, you know, competitive advantage and, and outperforming your markets and making your company um, a lot more valuable. So I think the, the analogy is, is, exactly, is exactly the same. Um, and as a result, you know, I think that's led to a significant uh, uh, sort of creation of a category of alternative data for companies and marketing departments, um, you know, uh, on top of all the other uh, areas that we've already discussed. It's been very interesting, I have to say. It's, uh, Definitely. An, an insight to uh, a lot of stuff we do anyway, but it's, uh, that's the real deal, like listening to what you've been going through. Yeah, Daniel, thank you. Was, uh, I found it very interesting. I don't know if the questions were on topic, but for me personally, I thought it was, it was really good. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much for having me and for listening. 